Profiles in Teaching with Technology is a podcast series created by Music First, a company dedicated to providing world-class cloud-based tools, content, and classroom management platforms to music teachers around the world. Each episode features a K-12 music educator who uses technology to enhance their teaching in innovative ways. We'll discuss the what, why, and how of their technology integration and hopefully share some teaching strategies that you can use in your own classroom. For more information about Music First, please visit www.musicfirst.com. There you'll be able to find out about all of our platforms, as well as sign up for a free 30-day trial. Anthony Beatrice is the Executive Director for the Arts for the Boston Public Schools. Anthony received his bachelor's and master's degrees in music education from the University of Massachusetts Lowell, where he was president of the MENC chapter, drum major of the marching band, and student trustee. Anthony started at Massachusetts Innovation School for Music in the Pentucket Regional School District, where he taught middle and high school courses in music technology, music to film and video games, concert band, percussion ensemble, public speaking, along with online music career pathway courses in music business, music education, and music composition. Anthony served over a decade on the Massachusetts Music Educators Association All-State Executive Board and was chairperson for the Northeast region of the state. He currently serves on the MMEA Innovations Council and is a member of the All-State Conference Committee. Anthony is in his 11th season as conductor of the Merrimack Valley Community Concert Band. He has served as an adjunct music professor at Merrimack College, Northern Essex Community College, and UMass Lowell. So it is a real treat for me to have Tony Beatrice uh, join our podcast this week. Tony, uh, I have very fond memories when I first met you. Um, I know that you went to UMass Lowell and you were were friends with Darcy Pickering, and I think that's how we first met. must have been like 12-something years, 10 years ago. I don't know when it was, but... uh, I remember you uh, at Massachusetts Music Educators uh, meeting you through Darcy. I think that's correct, right? Uh, yes. I actually saw you present on copyright infringement at the National MENC Conference, I think, in Minneapolis. Oh, wow. All right. Like, that's way, a while ago. Down. Yeah. Oh, very cool. That's like 2006. Goodness right. gracious. All right. Well, um, it, it's a great treat to have you on uh, on the podcast, Tony. And um, I, I have one other story uh, that I, I, I'd like to share with you, is that when I was pre- first introducing Music First back in 2013, I think it was, at, at MMEA, I was at that point in time talking about all the individual software that we were selling, NoteFlight, um, Soundation, uh, groovy, all these different uh, things. And you were the first ever to realize, at least publicly, what we were up to. And you asked the question, is there any way that you could tie all of these software titles into one place where we could log on? And I remember smiling and said, uh, watch this space. So well done. Uh, and I've been very impressed with uh, everything you've done, especially uh, what you're up to now. So why don't you talk about, um, you know, after you graduated UMass Lowell, you went into teaching. Why don't you just uh, catch us up from that point up to where you are today, Tony? Sure. Um, so I got both my bachelor's and master's degrees from UMass Lowell, and then I started teaching uh, in two different school districts. I taught in the Lowell Public Schools, which is an urban district in Massachusetts, about a half hour away from Boston. Um, and there I taught 
in five different schools, um, in alternative behavioral and therapeutic schools. It was a, um, a oh, they didn't have music and art and PE before, so it was sort of an experiment for this one year to try it out, and it was, wow. it was very successful. I didn't have any instruments or anything. They just gave me iPads, which was great, and um, it turned out to be a really fantastic experience. And then I spent eight years as well teaching in the Pentucket Regional School District. So I taught grades seven through 12, concert band, percussion ensemble. Um, we had a beautiful music technology program. I also taught public speaking. Um, and towards the end of my time there, we started a course in uh, music to film and video games. Um, and then here I am now in Boston. So yeah, why don't you talk about Tony? When I first of all, when I heard uh, that you had uh, gotten the gig in Boston, I was just a smile a mile wide. Why don't you talk about what your role is there and how that came about? Sure. Um, so I'm the executive director for the arts. This is my first year in this position. For, uh, the previous two years, I served as the program director for performing arts. Um, first of all, just to say, Boston Public Schools has fifty-five thousand students. Uh, made up of many different cultures, um, and we are uh, in 125 schools. Within that, we have 300 arts educators, and of the 300, it's about 110 that are music teachers. Uh, so my job has many different facets. I support our teachers. I go and observe, get feedback, especially our newer teachers. Uh, I help curate really high-quality professional development that's uh, current for our students and what our teachers are asking for. Um, I'm partnering with our nonprofit partners in the city, both in higher education, um, arts, cultural organizations, and community and youth development organizations. And um, yeah, and then when possible, I try to also help out with things in the uh, central office and really see where the arts can integrate with the other subject areas. Well, I got, I got to say, and I think I've told you this, I'm just so happy for you. You're a young guy and you are the, the head of the arts for a huge uh, school district, Boston Public Schools. I mean, how did you, I, I mean, you were teaching at that point, I guess, nine years and you just applied for it. I mean, how did that whole thing happen, man? It's just so cool. Um, well, the story is I applied for this position, not knowing if I would get it or not, or even an interview. And uh, Dr. Gina Greer from UMass Lowell told me about this program at Lincoln Center for educators in the summer to learn about aesthetics education. And I went to that and it turned out there were a bunch of Boston teachers there. So Myron Parker Brass, who was the former executive director, she just retired, um, she was there and I, she heard me interact with the uh, facilitator. And I, I think I just, there was one particular question I did a really great job answering and she kind of just gave me that look, you know? And then when I got back um, from New York, she gave me a call and then I started the interview process. So it was, just good timing. That's awesome, and 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 it's it's also good. Uh, it's good knowledge for every music teacher who's listening. You never know who you know. You never know who's watching at any time, and, and what might happen. So that's just it's just fascinating and 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 really great. You're a young guy, and you and you know you're really bringing some great ideas to the district. I'm just so impressed uh, with what you're doing. So why don't you talk about your philosophy of of what are you trying to do in Boston with the arts? Um, sure. Well, first of all, we want all students to have arts. Over the last 10 years, we've had a private-public partnership uh, with a nonprofit called Edvestors, um, and what they've done is worked with the district to increase arts education. Um, 
just 10 years ago, I think it was just around 60% of our students were getting arts education. And now students in grades pre-K through eight are receiving at least once weekly arts, if not twice weekly. Um, we're still building out our space at the high school level. So really zoning in on that, we're working with the Country Music Association, Mr. Hollis Opus Foundation to do a music audit to see where the holes are in the system. Um, and so my goal in the next couple of years is to create some real strong feeder patterns so parents know, like if my child plays orchestra at this school, these are the middle and high schools that you may want to select if they want to continue um, with that. Um, additionally, we're doing a lot of work with cultural relevancy, um, cultural responsiveness, linguistically sustaining practices. Um, we've been looking at the song list. I know that's a big thing right now that's uh, everyone's talking about in Absolutely. elementary general music. So we actually started this work a couple of years ago and we got a committee together um, of nine of our general music teachers from across the city. We went through our list of songs and did some research and now um, the Decolonizing the Music Room nonprofit organization has done a really great job also doing tons of research. So we've been leaning on uh, information from there as well. Um, and we're not just striking those songs from our song bank, but we're um, now also partnering with the organization Facing History to do some PD with our teachers about, especially at history teachers as well, how do we use these songs um, as a point of conversation to talk about bias. Um, and then we're doing an online blended course where our teachers are reading books about cultural responsiveness um, and then reflecting and we're doing some Google Hangouts with uh, people like Dr. Patina Love and uh, Dr. Connie McCoy. So some really cool things happening there. We're also introducing hip hop into the arts. Uh, the English High School, which is uh, America's oldest public high school, currently has two bands and we just added a, well, we transformed the music technology course that was happening into uh, a hip hop culture project that we're doing uh, with the help of Professor Jarrett Scheel from the Berklee College of Music. And we got a bunch of DJ 202 turntables and Roland's helping us out uh, with their education division. And so we got some pretty great things happening. I think in general, we're trying to get teachers to move away from being in front of the classroom and directing the instruction to more facilitated instruction and getting students creating and composing. And that looks different in different classrooms. Um, and so we wanna support what that looks like and sounds like uh, to meet the needs of all of our students. Well, I, Tony, I, I wish podcasts had video elements because I just have a smile a mile wide. I really, I'm just, and it's not, I am gushing, but it, it, you're doing really, that's such great work that you're doing. And I hope that other fine arts directors and music teachers and, and people who are the head of large urban school districts, in, in, uh, specifically in the arts, are listening. So, Tony, I heard that uh, you were on a, on a panel discussion, I think, down at the NAFME conference in Orlando uh, last, uh, or back in November. Um, why don't you talk about that? Because I, I hear you made a kind of a splash with uh, your fellow music educators. Sure. Um, so I was talking about the work that we're doing in uh, building cultural competency in BPS. It's not just happening in the arts. It's happening in all the, our subject areas. Um, what we're trying to move away from is cultural destructiveness with forced assimilation and move to a place of cultural proficiency where we can recognize different cultures and then use that as leverage in our instruction. Um, and that takes a lot of work. We've been using a tool called the seven forms of instructional bias 
which is basically like a rubric that outlines the different types of bias. And we looked at our curriculum materials and using that tool, we're able to make adjustments. Uh, for example, we have some really good curriculum for general music on uh, folk song stories, but the pictures that went along with them weren't that great. So we partnered with one of our high school art um, classes and they made new artwork and we're now printing that up and sending that out to our uh, general music classrooms. Um, and we're doing work with composing music and songwriting sort of as identity, self-identity projects, um, and also using music composing as a tool for uh, social justice and, and engagement. So really just creating music and getting it outside of the classroom and giving students a place where they feel comfortable. Um, and then also a new book just came out, um, It's Okay to Say They by uh, Christina Bloom. Um, and it's about how to adjust your practice so that you are creating a safe or brave space for uh, transgender or non-binary students. Um, sorry, Christina Whittlesey, yeah. Got it. So, I mean, the, what was the reaction of the music teachers? Because I never know what the larger music education profession thinks of the the really cutting edge and, and, and very insightful things that you're doing. I just, I, what was the reaction of the audience? It was actually a really great discussion after the presentation. Uh, this was part of the Program Leaders Summit, which is uh, one of the councils with NAFME, and it's led by Heather Cody. And so everyone was split up into small circle groups, and they had a poster uh, with certain questions, and everyone got to reflect on the presentation. And then I got to walk around and ask or answer any questions that people had. So it was actually a really enriching opportunity, a little different from a typical uh, conference session where you're just speaking and, and really only answering a couple of questions. You know, we're not starting this conversation. I think people have already started it, but I think we're the ones who... Uh, have been doing a lot of work so far because I, I feel like a lot of the sessions I go to about cultural responsiveness it's just philosophical it doesn't really give you some tangible things to lead with and do right it's not in practice it's, right it's, yeah so we're really trying to fill that void and you know we make some mistakes along the way and I talked about that in the session so um, that's why we're presenting it right, it's right. yeah yeah tell so people our journey and not make those same errors and, and have more successes well, uh, so to, to kind of shift the conversation a little bit over uh, to your relationship with music first, I'd like to talk about what you just were talking about and mention uh, an incident or, a, you know, an opportunity that you brought to us. Uh, and I think that a lot of um, people could learn from that. You, you came to us about a specific piece of our software that Music First offers called Focus on Sound. And you just, you know, in a very respectful way said, look, I want you to take a look at this piece of software and see if you think it reflects the community of the students that are, that are learning from it. And, and, you know, to be honest, I really had never considered it before. I just, it was a product from England. Uh, and for those of you that have never seen Focus on Sound, at, at the previous, uh, you know, when we launched it, the very, the strong majority of photos in, that we used in the software were of white people. Um, and so it, when you said, you know, I want you to take a look at it, I, I love your approach to it because you weren't like, hey, this is, you know, you guys are, you know, you guys, this is a racist product or, you know, it's very tone deaf. You said, I'd like you to consider it. And um, that uh, email and that, you know, that kind of it sparked a whole chain of events where we looked at what we were offering and, and, and immediately agreed with what you said. 
and then worked for about a year to change it. Um, and uh, you were the reason why we created the Focus on Sound US version. Um, I'm proud. I mean, just like you just said, we we make mistakes. Um, we we are sometimes blind to how our you know how our instruction or how our products. Um, what, what kind of uh, portrait they portray to the students that we're teaching. So I just wanted to say thank you for bringing it to our attention. And uh, the reaction that we've got from our customers here in the United States has been overwhelmingly positive. We also tried to do away with some of the gender stereotypes that are in, you know, instruments where you think flute and you immediately think, well, well, you know, women play the flute or if it's a trumpet that, you know, it's a male instrument. So we also took a lot of time to make sure that those gender biases were at least dealt with or as removed as much as possible. So Tony, I just wanted to say thank you for bringing that to our attention. And I hope other companies out there listen um, and are you know, equally open. Um, I, I'm proud of the work we did. It was, you know, it was a whole long <laughs> project, but, but I just wanted to say thank you for bringing it to our attention and you've benefited uh, hundreds of thousands of kids who now see themselves in the photos. Well, we're really, really appreciated, appreciative of it. Um, you know, one of the feedback I got from my our teachers at the high school level, specifically that we're using Focus on Sound, that they, they brought it up to me and I was like, oh, this is strange. And then we were also at the same time talking about the seven forms of instructional bias. And then, so we used that tool, we went through every page and then using data, we were able to give to you and then thank you for making all those changes. It's, it's awesome. Yeah, and no. I, I think vendors need to, need to follow suit. <laughs> no, well, I appreciate yeah. that. And uh, again, I'm, I'm just, I'm thrilled with the way, it, you know, it's, it's a hard pill to swallow sometimes you go, you know, to admit it and say, actually, he's right there. This is, this is biased. And so uh, anyway, we'll, we'll move on. But I just wanted to make sure people heard that story and, and, and how much I appreciate uh, what you did for us. Um, so yeah, why don't we talk about, um, you know, you've, to me, I've always, when I, when I think about uh, the work you're doing, uh, I know that a big thrust of your kind of philosophical approach is getting kids to be creative. And I'm assuming that's why uh, you brought Music First into the Boston Public Schools. So why don't you talk about, you know, what was that process to bring it in and, and how you're currently using it? I know that you're not personally teaching with it, but, but what was the uh, thought process and, and how has it been implemented? Sure. Um... So I've, I've been using Note Flight since 2008 when it first came out. And when Soundtrap came out, I think it's really when I discovered Music First and seeing you at, at the conference as well. And for me, it solved an issue because getting new vendors um, and Soundtrap like to become a vendor was back then in my school district just wasn't going to happen. So this was a great uh, time. And I also needed a learning management system, right? So um, even now, Google Classroom, everyone's using, but... Um, it's not 100% of, of what we need. Right. Um, and so I think that's what teachers want is a learning management system where the software is integrated. I think on my end as an administrator, I want something that is streamlined, standards aligned, um, and I want to be able to offer professional development so we're all on the same page. I think right now in music, there's tons of technology out there and we can sometimes get very lost, right? And it's really hard to help teachers grow um, if we don't have good PD uh, to back that up. So we've done some interesting things with our professional development. We partnered uh, with Dr. Stephanie Langle at Berkeley 
uh, who's in the music education department there. You're one of my very dear friends. She's amazing. Love her. And uh, this is the second year that she's teaching an online course through our Music First platform for our teachers. Um, and then we release uh, the teachers that take the course. They then get a package of classroom accounts to use in their, in their classes. Um, and then they take it from there. Um, but I think when we first brought in Music First three years ago, like it didn't have a lot of buy-in and then it was that PD piece that was missing. And that's, that's what really helped uh, recruit teachers and got them to change their practice. And um, you know, th this year, especially we got it approved for academic lane credit. Uh, so I don't have tons of money in my budget. I can't just hand out stipends for teachers to do PD, but I do have an opportunity to apply for them almost like a graduate course um, to receive credit that they could use to um, gain some leverage in the salary scale. So that was really helpful that we got that approved. And I think um, that's something administrators should think about because we don't always have money, but there's other ways um, to make it so that uh, teachers feel like we're valuing their time. Um, and uh, in the spring, we're gonna do a composition and songwriting day and have some guest speakers and have students come and uh, show off some of their work and get some feedback. That's awesome. Um, well, let me ask you just to re rewind a bit. And, and why is it that you think technology is important in music education? Well, I think to connect with kids, right? Um, technology is the way to go. I think oh, there's that SAMR model yep. um, of the different ways that we use technology, like to modify or to redefine or to do something that you couldn't do before. And I think yep. Uh, specifically do something that you've never been able to do before, right? So if we didn't have technology, probably wouldn't be able to remix stems of songs that the students listen to. Um, use a loop-based composing as an entry point into creating music. So um, I think it's a great way to connect with students and give them the ability to create. My, my big dream is that students are composing and creating for themselves and their friends and then learning an instrument and getting it out there into yeah. the world, putting it on SoundCloud, getting out to the community and performing. Right, well, we're a kindred spirit, Tony. Absolutely. And I think to me, that's, um, you know, for better or for worse, because when, you know, when I grew up in the, in the seventies and eighties, it just was not available. It wasn't a thing. You know, I, I, you look back to those dark ages of music technology and it was something that only a very few people had access to. And the, the idea, I mean, you're using NoteFlight since 2008. I would imagine that you used it for the same reason I did, is that I could use it on any device, anywhere. It's like the Kindle of uh, music software. Um, and, and that access to it, especially in a city like Boston, um, I'm sure that uh, if we looked at the data, uh, how your students in Boston are accessing uh, you know, any music software, let alone music first, is they're doing it on their phones. Uh, they're, you know, they're, they're, if there's a Chromebook program, then that's how they do it. But the second they're on the bus on the way home, they're, they're, they're on their phones. And uh, I, I just wrote an article recently for Intune Monthly about this, is that uh, you know, we're always competing for their, their attention and their time outside of the classroom, even inside the classroom. Right. So anything we could do to you know, give them these creative tools is, uh, is a win. So let me ask you uh, a couple more questions for you, Tony. I really appreciate your time. 
Um, what advice would you give to other music teachers who are thinking of incorporating music tech into their programs? Or, or, or for that matter, not just teachers, but for administrators? So I think a couple of things. First, start small and simple. So I remember one of the first music tech projects I did uh, was taking, a, I got this from Gina Greer, uh, taking a video from archive.org, deleting the sound on GarageBand and then having the students create their own, right? And uh, that was a great learning experience for me because I started out with like a 20 minute video and that was way too long. Way too long. <laughs> way too long. And now, now I know like, okay, if I'm first starting this out with a class, I'm gonna do like a one or two minute video tops, right? Yep. And so you learn a bucket of tricks over time, but I would suggest talking to other teachers who are already doing this work. Um, so that way you don't have to spend that much time learning um, the bucket of tricks. Uh, read books. Uh, Barbara Friedman's books are, I mean, before her books, there really wasn't that much out there. Right. Um, I was just kind of making stuff up on my own and, and talking to professors and, and getting ideas. So I, my curriculum was more of like different projects. Um, and then over time, I would base projects on the students in front of me. And that was my way of being culturally relevant. It's not just like asking kids what they listen to and having them play a CD and write a poster about it, um, but really engaging them and figuring it out, uh, figuring out what engages them. And it's not every project that you do is not going to connect with every kid. So you got to, you got to work with that. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and I think that what you said, I'm, I'm sure like, like, uh, like me, you read these books and Barbara Friedman's is, is one that is fantastic. Scott Watson, a uh, mm -hmm. whole bunch of folks, uh, Jay Dorfman, everybody, they've, uh, there, there's some really great resources out there, but uh, like me, I'm sure you said, Hey, I do this. Hey, I did this. So it's like, you know, we're all with the tools that are available, there are, you know, unlimited possibilities, but with students in, in real world, what can actually, what can these kids do in a 42 minute period over, right. over 10 weeks? Um, I'm sure you found the same thing. You're like, well, is it, it's nice to know that I'm not the only one that thought of this, that there, that a lot of people, or there's a, a certainly a, a core group of people that are doing really great things. Absolutely. Yes. And, and Facebook is a great, you know, if you're on Facebook is right. a, a great space um, within all the different music teacher groups to really interact and ask questions and see examples from classes and stuff. Yeah, yeah. I find that I find that if you ask questions, if you post it in, in such a way that, you know, is just really asking for help, you'll get tons of responses. Absolutely. Like occasionally, you'll get some snarky comments. But for the most part, music educators are more than willing to help share and they just want to see their idea that they think is, you know, that work for them, you know, widespread with other kids because everybody wants to make an impact in music education or you would right. never have gotten into the profession. So what kind of things, I, I know that you're, you know, not teaching in a classroom day to day, but do, any ideas about how the, what kind of composition projects like specifically so that people might get some ideas for themselves of what you're doing in Boston? Um, sure. So I, we have one of our teachers who's doing more um, station-based learning. So if, if people don't know what that is, it, it's instead of the teacher in front of the classroom, they have maybe five stations and one station's learning ukulele, one's learning piano. Um, so this one teacher is doing it with uh, one station being composition and the students are writing very, very short pieces and coming up with lyrics. Um, I think it's just like four chords and then they're gonna play it on the ukuleles after. Okay. Um, 
another at the high school level, we have students writing their own raps and then putting it up on SoundCloud. Um, and then now we're kind of interacting that with the turntable stuff that we're trying to do in the um, Akai MIDI keyboards. Um, and we have a lot of podcasting going on. Uh, I, I saw one teacher who has students um, who it's a majority uh, Spanish speaking school. So she had her students make um, podcasts about the project they were going to do, but in uh, their home language. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. I mean, it's just a great way because that, I mean, realistically, we have students who come to Boston directly from other countries, um, not knowing any English whatsoever. So you could be teaching any curriculum and then halfway through the year, you just get a new student who just arrived. And it's, um, so how do you make your space comfortable and welcoming for, for those students? So um, that's definitely a good starting space is to have some materials already in that language ready to go. Yeah, did you ever do podcasting with your students? Because I, I mean, obviously we're we're on a podcast right now. But when it first came out in two thousand six, I went, you know, all crazy with my kids making every kind of project instead of them doing a written paper or or you know a PowerPoint. They did podcasting, and and I guess with the resurgence of podcasting, the popular things like Serial and and other podcasts that just made it suddenly really hip and trendy again. It, it's had a resurgence in, in education. But have, did you do podcasting when you were teaching? I did, yeah. So at Pentucket, I actually used it as part of my public speaking course. Oh, cool. Um, so the kids had to pick something controversial, go interview people throughout the building. I just signed a pass and they, they went off. Um, and then we listened to some NPR podcasts and talk about intro music and hub bumpers, as they call them. Like Radiolab. Radiolab is, is so perfect right. doing that. <laughs> yes. And then we... Um, we would put it online and stream it um, as well afterwards. So it was, it was pretty hip. And you, you are totally right. Podcasting is, I, I thought it was dying down. And now I was just at Staples last night and they're renovating and I was getting this microphone that I'm using now. And they're like, oh, do you want to get the two year plan in case it breaks? And I was like, well, are you even going to sell microphones? And she was like, well, actually where that whole space over there is going to be a whole new podcasting center. I was like, shocked. So yeah, it's totally Yeah, I mean that that Soundtrap has made such huge inroads into the larger education market because of podcasting. Now, I mean the ability th this podcast um you know, I'm sitting on a blue snowball microphone and a laptop and you're sitting in Boston and we're using a, a webinar tool uh and then I'm posting it I'm using GarageBand actually and, and Soundtrap to edit things. And then I'm posting that to SoundCloud and then SoundCloud immediately disseminates through an RSS feed, really simple syndication to all of the different podcasting outlets. So completely free. And awesome. I think music departments should get on board. I mean, absolutely. To, you know, yeah. to have a, 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 every music department have their own podcast channel or at least at a minimum, the school have a podcast channel on SoundCloud and then you know, through Spotify, through iTunes, through Stitcher, or however you get them, um, you know, disseminate it that way. It's such an easy thing to do. And it's, I, I mean, you're, I think you're episode number 18, 19 or so. And I've, I've, it's just been such a great way to uh, connect with people and then disseminate it. So uh, everybody do podcast. <laughs> but I think too, it's a great way to let people know what you're doing you know, band and choir and orchestra and jazz band does a great job, right? They go yeah. out and they perform and people know what you're doing. I think there's a disconnect in music technology um, 
we don't always showcase our, our work. And I notice when I go into schools, I'll make a connection to visual art now that that's in the wheelhouse that um, we work with. Um, uh, those teachers are immediately putting our artwork up as soon as possible yep. around the building. And I've noticed newer teachers who haven't caught on to that yet really have a, a hard time building uh, relationship with the students because the students don't feel like their work is valued. But the moment you put it up for the public, it's, it's just a game changer. And I think we got to think the same way with what we're creating um, in music class. Yeah, I mean, back in 2006, 2007, I was doing podcasting with my middle school general music students. And I mean, the, these podcasts, which the kids thought were just like school projects, they were being listened to around the world. And I would show them the map on a, on a, a platform called Podomatic, which I don't know if it's still around. But um, and the kids would be fascinated that people in Australia, in China, in, in Argentina were listening to their podcast. And they're like, why? And I was like, because you guys are doing really cool stuff. <laughs> That's right. And, and I know for Music First specifically, our podcasts get listened to exponentially more than our YouTube videos get viewed. So right. uh, I, yeah, I don't see why anybody wouldn't be doing this. And it's you know something like Soundtrap, whatever you're using, Audacity, GarageBand, Soundation, anything, as long right. as you can record audio, you should be doing it. Uh, all right, Tony, it's, oh, it's fascinating, uh, great conversation. So I just have uh, one more question for you, and it's a question that I ask of everybody. Uh, and that is, if you could wave, wave a magic wand, what would you want music first or music tech in general to be able to do that it can't do now? So I think cloud-based composition software um, needs to catch up on being able to sync with video. Definitely. <laughs> I, I think that's my, you, well, you've heard me talk about this every time I see, and no flight has, they've got some YouTube syncing ability. Yeah. Uh, which which I did use when I was teaching my music to film class. It like that feature came out halfway through that semester, and I was so happy and thankful. Um, but I think like we all know, GarageBand does that. But now that Chromebooks are kind of taking over the world, um, it would be great to be able to do some uh, sound creation to videos on cloud-based software. Well, first, I mean, so the folks at Soundtrap and Soundation, I really hope you just heard what Tony said. He's the executive director of the arts of one of the largest school districts in the country um, asking for a video. And, and Tony, if I could ask you to follow up with an email to them, I'll send you their email. Oh, gladly. Yes. I know that technically there are hurdles to doing it. Sure, but, sure. Yeah. You know, I, I just think it would explode if people, if kids could do it. And, and you know, being able to sync to a YouTube video just seems like such an obvious feature and I'm going to keep pushing and keep pushing and hopefully uh, you know sometime in 2020 we get that out there because I know it'll be extraordinarily popular. Awesome. Oh All wait right, so somebody's breaking in. Hi sorry I'm doing a podcast. Sorry yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. Somebody broke in. Yeah it's cool. All right so I'll cut I'll cut right there and then and then come back. So um, I'll just I'll finish up right now. Hold on. Sure, sure. Sorry about that. <laughs> no problem. I like put a box in front of the door. So and they just moved it anyway. That's yeah, nice. there's knocking on the door. All right, here we go. Well, Tony, it's been uh, a real treat speaking with you. I, I look any time I can uh, spend with you is good time. Uh, keep doing great things uh, for the students of Boston. I, I'm just in a way I'm so happy for you. And at the other in another way, it's a, a tinge of jealousy because you have such a massive impact in music education and I hope you know that and I hope you know that you're doing really wonderful things for the students in that city and uh, I think everybody who's a, 
a director of fine arts for a large group of uh, schools and students uh, can learn something from you. And I, I hope you spend decades there uh, and, and really uh, keep doing great things, Tony. It's a pleasure to have you on our show. Well, thank you so much. And, and thank you for everything you're doing to push us forward. I think, uh, you know, the music technology community wouldn't be here without you. Um, just thinking about all the sessions I've been to of yours, you've really helped drive this. Um, so it's part of just everyday music education. You know, I think that's really important. Oh, that's very kind of you, Tony. Thanks so much. And uh, even though this podcast will be airing in January, have, a, have an absolutely wonderful holiday season. I hope you get some rest. You too. Thank you. All right. Take care. Thank you for listening to Profiles in Teaching with Technology from Music First. For more information about Music First, please visit www.musicfirst.com. If you would like to stay up to date with other music teachers doing innovative things in their classrooms with technology, please subscribe to our podcast through whatever outlet you listen to podcasts on. Thanks for listening.